0: Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9. Ignition sequence start.
1: Space Nuts.
0: 5, 4, 3, 2. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast with me, Andrew Dunkley, and of course, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hi, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you going? I'm very well. Good to see you and talk to you again. Still here, still in the outer reaches of the solar system. Well, maybe the inner reaches of the solar system. Or in some part of the solar system, ever moving, (laughs) ever fluid. A bit fluid, yes, that's right. Now, today we've got a a few uh, interesting and a little bit of sad news um, stories to tell. Uh, First of all, China's space program wants to look at national security as a part of their agenda, which sounds a little bit... Interesting and odd, although uh, national security, international security, global security, um, solar security are all kind of talked about in these um, uh, when we talk interstellar space and, and our local systems and everyone seems to think it should be a peaceful place. So we'll find out what China's spin on that is, so to speak. Uh, We also talk about Vera Rubin, who's um, uh, sadly passed away, uh, but one of uh, the great female scientists, if not one of the great scientists of our time. And uh, interstellar travel, we're going to investigate that. Uh, NASA has uh, put out uh, some thoughts on where we're headed with that. And it might be a long time before people are doing it, but robotically could happen sooner. But first, uh, Fred, let's talk uh, the Chinese space program and how that equates to their national security. What on earth are they talking about, or off-earth for that matter? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're talking in, – in many ways this is more of the same, but it does – illuminate to some extent what the Chinese are planning in space. And this, uh, this is a story that's basically emerged very recently, because what the Chinese government has done is published a policy paper about their space program. Uh, and it uh, specifies a number of things. Uh, it says that the program uh, must be part of China's overall development strategy, in other words, the way the country is developing as a nation uh, of the earth, but that it also must meet the demands of economic, scientific and technological development, national security and social progress. Uh, So you've got those items as being part and parcel of the space program. There is uh, a significant comment that says China always adheres to the principle of the use of outer space for peaceful purposes and opposes the weaponization of or an arms race in outer space. Mm. Uh, So so it's um, basically... Uh, is fairly clear on that, although uh, it has to be said that, um, you know, in the past, uh, the Chinese have indeed um, included weapons tests in their space programs. Uh, But uh, the, the bottom line seems to be that they want to be Good uh, global players in the space game, but they're not going to be pushed around by anybody. Well, uh, I can so- I can
0: understand that <laughs> that stand. Uh, it's it's not the first time this sort of things come up though. You, you remember the Star Wars controversy with the United Indeed, States government, right. and of course, I'm sure Russia, even though they probably deny it heavily, uh, have certainly looked at weaponization in space. Um, I think everyone agrees we we should not do that. But uh, gee, you know, saying no and Actually not doing it uh, two totally different and <laughs> widely separated things um, I guess that's true.
1: Um, we can only uh, watch with great interest what happens the the, the the positive side of it though is that the, um, the this policy paper uh, spe- sort of spelled out the timetable that the Chinese see for the, the what you might call the peaceful uses of space they They want to have a permanent uh, manned space station in orbit. By around 2022, and that's not really very far away—six nah. years away, five years away—it's uh, um, it, that sort of timescale. So their work on the, you know, their um, the trial uh, space stations. Uh, which have been very successful. Their Tiangong 2, Heavenly Palace 2 space laboratory, is still in orbit. Um, A month or so ago, two astronauts spent 30 days aboard that that, uh, space laboratory. So that's uh, one thing. They would like to launch uh, their first Mars probe by 2020. That, of course, will be a robotic probe. And um, also have ambitions to land a probe on the dark side of the moon, actually within a couple of years. But that's not something that we've really found out much about. Mm. Neither have we found much more about uh, a goal which has been heralded uh, already back in time, uh, landing a Chinese person on the moon by 2036. So that's... Uh, certainly their long term ambitions uh, they they have that very much as their target that 's still a few years down the track but um, if they progress the way they have been doing it, it will come around very quickly
0: yes indeed they they certainly have become one of the powerful nations uh, not only in space but economically in the world uh, they, I remember maybe a decade ago people were saying China will be the next superpower uh, i I think they 're already there to be frank about it and uh, yeah, not far behind them would be India. Uh, of course, you've got Japan, as we've spoken about before, who've become major players in space. The Chinese have been portrayed in science fiction films in recent times because of their prowess in space. I mean, Absolutely. you can't ignore it, and and neither should we. No. But, yeah, I think if um, all the, the space players in the world um, – want to put up these policies maybe maybe there should be a more formal approach to it rather than well this is what we think and this is what we'll do And you know that's where we stand it's it, it, it's it's a political football in many respects space uh indeed it is and the
1: bottom line uh um to wind up this this little segment the bottom line is that in the end. Uh, the biggest ambitions in space, which i hope we 'll talk about in a couple of minutes uh, those ambitions really will need very wide international collaboration uh, if we're if we 're going to you know, to actually achieve those. And so I think that is where things are going. But the Chinese, uh, with their current uh, trajectory towards um, really um, you know, successful exploitation of space, they will bring to any international deal uh, something much more than they would have done a few years ago, simply because of the progress that they've made.
0: Mm. All right. They are certainly an interesting um, group to watch when it comes to space exploration. And uh, one thing about them that I've probably um – come to know is that if they say they're going to do something, they will ultimately do it. They don't don't seem to hold back. Quite so. Mm. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we're going to talk about Vera Rubin. Now, that's a name, I suppose, that in astronomical circles, circles would put her in the famous category But for the average person on the street, they'd probably not even have a glint of knowledge about her. And I suppose when you're talking science and astronomy, it's a pretty small circle in in global scales. and, And those achievements would be known well to the people who know well what the work is about. But for the layman, it's, it's, it sort of passes them by. But um, we, we recently lost Vera Rubin, and, and it's a, a, a rather significant loss. Her work is, uh, has been um, right up there in the upper tiers of, of uh, the scientific world.
1: Uh, that's correct, Andrew. She uh, she was uh, one of the great names of astronomy. And you're quite right that it's mostly astronomers who know, who know of Vera Rubin's work. But if you say dark matter to many people in the street, not everybody, but a lot of people, they would know what you're talking about, something that we know exists in the universe, uh, but we don't know what it is. Mm. Vera Rubin is the person Who She didn't discover dark matter, but she probably did more than anybody to put it on the map in terms of uh, the fact that there is something out there that we don't understand. So Vera, uh, an, an astronomer, a lifelong astronomer, born in 1928... Um, with parents of fairly humble backgrounds and certainly not uh, particularly scientific. Her father was an an electrical engineer. But she went to university. Uh, She was devoted to astronomy for her whole life. She actually was refused entry uh, to the uh, University of of Princeton. Um, This was uh, on the grounds that she was actually... Not a male. Uh, she was. Uh, she attempted to enroll at Princeton, but women weren't allowed into the graduate astronomy program. It's just you know, it's just a, a, a look back to a, an era where uh, everything was different, uh, and that really gave um, gave Vera the other string to her bow. She spent a lifetime being a passionate advocate for women in science. And, you know, you can understand with a background like that that she would be driven very much to try and change things as she became more and more senior mm. in the world of science. She did do a master's degree at Cornell University uh, and eventually her uh, her PhD, um, which uh, she did, um, in fact, at Georgetown University. But the Princeton uh, you know that Princeton turned down or not back. Uh, it, it's it stung her and stayed with her. Um, it's perhaps a, a reflection on the way that things did trans transpire in her life that she actually died uh, in Princeton because she was uh, working there for a lot of uh, a lot of her life. Um, why is she important? Back in the mid 1970s, uh, Vera was observing galaxies. These huge aggregations of hundreds of billions of stars and gas and dust, and realized that they were spinning too quickly, that uh, these galaxies, uh, if all you could see was all that was there, they should be flying apart. Uh, So she recognized that that probably meant there was something more whose gravity was holding them together, something that we couldn't see. Uh, Actually, Andrew, this had been pointed out before Vera's time. In fact, the discovery that really uh, initiated the, the, the whole quest for dark matter was made in 1933, a long, long time ago, um, uh, by a man called Fritz Vicky. He was a Swiss-American astronomer who, who, who actually uh, figured out that um, galaxy clusters that he was observing should have flown apart billions of years ago if there was nothing more than what he could see holding them together. Yeah. So he, he flagged that there was a problem, but nobody took that issue up. And then in 1970, an Australian astronomer, who I know well, Ken Freeman, uh, from the Australian National University, he flagged that there was a problem as well, because he saw that galaxies seemed to be rotating more quickly than they should be. Uh, But it was only when Vera Rubin made her observations, and perhaps it was because she was American, perhaps it was because uh, she was a woman astronomer. It's it's, uh, unusual back in the mid-1970s, but perhaps for whatever reasons that was when the astronomical community really started taking this idea seriously, that there was something wrong with our understanding of the cosmos and that there must be something out there that was controlling the universe in a way that um, uh, that, that actually we still don't understand. We understand that it's due to gravity, but we don't know what the material is that is providing that gravitational force. Um, on on um, On the heels of Vera's discovery, She uh, basically, in in many ways, initiated the the search for dark matter. And during the 1980s, there were two theories, the theory uh, of machos, which were, of course, acronyms. uh, Sorry, the two theories were acronyms, machos and wimps. Uh, Machos were massive, compact halo objects. Wimps were weakly interacting, massive particles. (laughs) Um, Machos were very quickly ruled out. What they were supposed to be was... Uh, was dead black holes or you know orphan planets or defunct stars things that didn't have any illumination of their own but they were very quickly ruled out in the in the 1990s actually by work again done at Mount Stromlo in Canberra mm. and so now we believe that what dark matter is is a species of subatomic particle whose nature is unknown. The best guess is something called a neutralino, but we don't know whether neutralinos exist or not. And so the baton, really, for trying to discover what dark matter is all about, has passed to the Large Hadron Collider and similar facilities where these uh, these particles are being investigated.
0: I... I just pause for a moment because a uh, thought has crossed my mind. Uh, obviously, she has um, done some significant work and, and uh, achieved great things in her life. Is there a process that guarantees that her work won't just fade away into nothingness and all that knowledge and, and uh, understanding lost? How, how does the astronomical world maintain? What has been achieved by someone like Vera Rubin?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Andrew. And in fact, um, that happens uh, in many ways almost automatically because the the data and the and the you know the measurements and the um, the deductions that she brought to astronomy are all enshrined in the astronomical literature, which is a kind of uh, it's a repository of knowledge. And it includes all the major journals, the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, the astrophysical journal, Nature. All these major journals are really um, part of an archive that has been built up actually since the Enlightenment, um, because some of those journals go back to the 1670s. And they contain all that knowledge and information. And so, um, you know, the the measure of of a scientist's success in many ways is how often their papers Are cited and citation indexes are now very much a modern trend for saying how well you're doing as a scientist. Um, There is one uh, addition to that, though, that I might um, uh, suggest, and that is that uh, Vera, for many years, was regarded as a likely candidate for a Nobel Prize. Uh, because um, the dark matter stuff is of such importance. She was never awarded one. She may well have been nominated for one. I don't know. I don't have insights into that, but she was never awarded the Nobel Prize. And I think a lot of astronomers think that is probably rather unfair. Uh, Perhaps it was because the dark matter problem had been flagged before uh, Vera came along. She was the person who really forced people to take notice of it. Uh, as we were saying at the beginning sadly she died she was a uh, ripe old age of 88 she died on christmas day and uh, her loss is mourned throughout the world of science and astronomy indeed but
0: uh, her legacy will live on for many many years and uh, who knows where that might lead and uh, you know she she's um, certainly done some amazing work that will not uh, not be wasted by the sound of it indeed mm. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson.
1: Okay, we checked all four systems
0: and came with a go. Space Nuts. Okay, a final segment today, Fred, is uh, to do with interstellar travel. And and this is an area that uh, we've, we've spoken about before, uh, how to make long-haul travel over hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of light years, uh, and do it in well less than a lifetime we would hope obviously that's the stuff of science fiction at the moment but nasa is certainly looking at it they've um, they've even published a a website uh, discussing some of these these things and it would be an exciting day if we ever overcome the mathematical and scientific and astronomical challenges of interstellar interstellar travel uh, and i think uh, only you know, as a matter of days ago, such a such a science fiction movie was released called Passengers uh, that discusses interstellar travel, uh, and that involved putting people to sleep for hundreds of years. Maybe that's the solution. What's NASA on about? Um, all of the all of the above, really, Andrew, because um, this is, I think, a very
1: exciting uh, prospect. Uh, it, it actually goes back to a report that was published uh, last year. In fact, at the Uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is uh, one of NASA's facilities. And uh, this report is Science and Enabling Technologies for the Exploration of the Interstellar Medium. Uh, So it's about uh, not so much the, the stars that we might eventually visit, but the the journey in the sense that it is about the the landscape that you have to traverse in order to get to the stars, and that is what we uh, in the trade call the interstellar medium mm. uh, so the The interstellar medium is really um quite well understood from you know the perspective of uh, ground based observations uh, it 's known to be full of Uh, sort of very rarefied but high energy gas. It's full of particles that are coming from probably very distant galaxies. Uh, And it probably also contains dust as well at some fairly low level, you know, a few particles per square per cubic kilometer, sorry, per cubic meter or something of that sort. But this whole report is about uh, it's a very broad brush thing. It's about looking at the prospects for crossing the interstellar medium. It's about finding out what the interstellar medium is about, and it's about what we might do on the way uh, to the uh, to the nearest stars, um, both robotically—that's with uncrewed spacecraft or unmanned spacecraft—or uh, um, with you know space probes that actually have humans on board. That's the one. That latter aspect is the one that is pushed furthest into the future. We're not anywhere near yet contemplating a manned or uh, journey to the nearest star. But the technologies uh, are certainly being, um, being appraised. Things like, well, could you actually, rather than use chemical rockets, uh, could you use some new technologies to push this spacecraft up to something like a tenth of the speed of light, which means that the Uh, You know, the journey time comes down to maybe 100 years rather than 100,000 years, which is what it would be at the moment. Uh, And uh, the answer is, yes, perhaps these these ideas of uh, solar sails, which are projected uh, along by giant lasers uh, in orbit, perhaps somewhere in the solar system, blasting them out uh, out of the solar system and into the void. That's the kind of thinking that's going into it, as well as the way that you might want to. Um, you know, you, you want to treat your passengers, whether you do put them into a sus- state of suspended animation or a, because that's a possibility. It's not achievable yet, but maybe down the track it will. And certainly the, the biomechanicians are, are looking at that kind of thing or whether you want to build an environment that would allow uh, many uh, people to undergo several generations so they have their own families and they have their families and all the rest of it and that means you've got to have sustainable crops and things like that on a very large uh, maybe almost planet-sized spacecraft so that's technology once again that's a long way away but the the if i can put it this way the more down-to-earth aspect of this report is uh, you know our exploration of the interstellar medium itself. We're on the brink of of being there uh, already, Andrew, as you alluded to at the beginning, because the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecraft are right on the edge of the Earth's, I beg your pardon, of the Sun's magnetic influence, uh, what we call the heliopause. And, um, you know, very, very close to the the genuine interstellar medium, that that, that place where the main, gal- main magnetic field is due to the, the galaxy itself rather than the sun. And they note that there are quite a few interesting things that you can do uh, once you get to these sorts of distances uh, from Earth. For example, once you get to something like 138 light days from the Earth, which is Uh, About 10,000 astronomical units, an astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to the Sun, Uh, Get 10,000 times as far away from the Sun as the Earth is, and you come to something that you might call a focal point for the Sun. It's where the Sun's gravity uh, distorting the space around it makes a lens that you can actually use to magnify very distant objects. And of course, what everybody wants to magnify are the planets of distant stars. Absolutely. To see, to see whether they've got continents or clouds or whatever on them. Mm. Um, it's a complex process. Uh, first of all, you've got to get your spacecraft out there. Uh, you've got to stabilize it in that position. And then you've got to observe your distant solar systems around the edge of the sun. What the sun's gravity does is turns the image of a distant star or planet into a ring around it, something we call an Einstein ring. But by by investigating that, the structure of the ring, then you can um, kind of synthesize an image of whatever lies beyond it. It's something that uh, we are already in the infancy of in astronomy. That technique is used Um, quite regularly in discovering the planets of other stars. It's called gravitational microlensing. So that is the kind of interesting and pretty exciting stuff that NASA are thinking about. And the reason I wanted to raise this, Andrew, is that it does show that this uh, great space agency over there across the Pacific is thinking ahead. They're not just um, locked in terms of thinking about the International Space Station and very local stuff like heading to the Moon and Mars. They are thinking big in terms of what we might achieve in the next 50 to 100 years.
0: Yeah, it's very exciting and fascinating, but, uh, yeah, it's generations away, unfortunately, but um, that's not surprising given our current level of technological capability. But um, it brings me back to science fiction films and Star Trek and shows like that and makes me wonder, uh, is there a possibility in the future that we'll be able to um, maybe jump in hyperspace <laughs> or create wormholes for interstellar travel, that sort of thing. Is that—is that beyond reality? It, uh,
1: it, it is in terms of, um, you know, uh, our present understanding of the way physics works. I know um, a few years ago, uh, in fact, it's probably more than a decade ago now, some scientists at the University of London, University College London, worked out uh, what you would need to build a warp drive in terms of uh, the, you know, the way you would need to bend space into a wormhole in order to, mm. to zoom along at faster than the speed of light. Turns out you need more than the energy budget of the entire universe to do that. <laughs> And uh, that's why I suspect that doesn't figure in NASA's plans yet. But who knows where physics is leading us? I mean, that's another reason for keeping an eye on the Large Hadron Collider, uh, because the discoveries that are made there might open the way to extra dimensions and things of that sort. And who knows what wormholes you and I might be slipping through in the future, Andrew?
0: Absolutely. And and it, it's, a, it's a bit of a dorky kind of concept for me to bring up but uh, when we started exploring the earth we did it in sailing ships now we're looking at sail as a way of exploring the universe i think (laughs) that's a beautiful irony it's great stuff isn't
1: it and it um yes it's it's certainly got a resonance with our
0: forebears there indeed fred lovely to catch up with you thank you as always A great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk to you. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Send us your questions, your thoughts, your ideas. Maybe there's something you'd like us to talk about. We'd be happy to hear from you. And thank you again for listening, and catch us next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor.
1: This has been another
0: quality podcast production from Sights.com.